following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Well, to transition us into thinking about this topic of faith at work, I'd like to ask you to briefly discuss something with, with your neighbor sitting next to you. And if you are a kind of a private person, you might want to freshen your coffee right now if you don't like to talk to strangers. Or you can just talk to the person who came with you if you came with somebody. But just very quickly share what is the highest recognition that you could hope to receive in your industry, whatever that is. Um, and remember, we define industry a lot very broadly. So it could be any, whatever you do for, for yourself, for work during the day. What is the highest recognition you feel like you could receive in that field? All right? Take 30 seconds, 15 seconds each, and uh, turn to your neighbor and, and share. All right, go ahead and um, wrap up that conversation. Did you learn something interesting about your neighbor? <laughs> something you didn't want to know? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> well, we, we started last week with this new series called Faith at Work, talking about how uh, we can be people of Christian faith, specifically when we think about our workplace. And one of the things we did last week was we, we took a survey, and um, you told by a, by a little piece of paper, you wrote down what uh, industry you are part of, all right? And so Elliot has brought back the, I forgot to bring them, so I asked him to get them. There's not a ton left, but a lot of you took, did this last week. So if you've already done this, just keep passing the paper. Would you hand it over there, there, yes. to Pat and uh, Anna? If you've already done it, just pass it along. If you haven't done it yet, wouldn't, if you wouldn't mind marking it and then hanging on to the one you've marked, and you can put it up in the colander that somebody will bring here. Um, before the communion time happens. And just kind of trying to get a sense of what industries the artisan community works in. And it's okay to mark more than one. Anna told me that as she recorded them this week, almost everybody last week marked more than one, which says something very interesting about our community, I think. Uh, And if we run out, just um, we'll get over it. We'll make it work. (laughs) I meant to print more and I just forgot, so I apologize. So last week we talked about work in paradise. Uh, how work is something that is inherent to our created nature, how it's a way that God invites us to join him in bringing about a good world, a fruitful world, and in affecting uh, human flourishing. And all of that is true in the stories of creation in the Bible before we get to the place in the story where sin enters the world, before what theologians and church people call the fall, all right? So all of that design for what work is, is kind of inherent to who we are, even in the ideal, literally in Eden, right? Well, (laughs) that's probably the wrong word to use, um, given my interpretation that I shared with you last week. Um, But in paradise, in Edenic reality, how about that? Good enough. So you may remember that I said last week, one of the things I said is um, that that work is not the curse of sin, rather that work is under the curse of sin, just like everything else in creation. So today, I want to take a look at, how this, at the story of how sin entered the world and how work came to be under the curse of sin and uh, maybe what we can 
do about it. Before we do that, I want to pause for just a minute and ask for God's uh, help as we look at this passage. It's a challenging one for us to look at, I think, in a number of different ways, and uh, I think we need the Spirit's uh, intercession and presence in our minds and hearts as we do this. So would you join me in praying for this moment? God, we uh, are thankful for Scripture, and we submit to it. We want to hear the words um, that have been written down, recorded, uh, under your inspiration, for our benefit. We pray that this story uh, would be true to us, would be challenging to us, would convict us, and would draw us ultimately closer to you and to your son Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, and it's in him we place all our hope and trust. Amen. So what I would like to do is read Genesis chapter 3 together. Well, not together. I'm just going to read it. But you can follow along in your Bibles if you'd like. Um, it's, uh, I don't normally read a whole chapter of the Bible, but it's not too long, and I think we want to have this whole story in our minds as we look at this. And it starts on page 2 in the Red Bibles. It's very easy to find, no matter what Bible you're using. First book in the Bible, third chapter. This story will be uh, very familiar to some of you, maybe the first time that others of you have heard it, and most of us will probably be somewhere in between. So let's look at Genesis chapter 3. I'll read um, about half of it and then stop, uh, and, um, because I mainly want to focus on the end of the story where God explains what the consequences of sin will be. For today, I'm not so much interested in the nature of the sin that, was, that occurred, but rather in the consequences of that sin. Does that make sense? All right, so Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit from the tree, and I ate. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. You notice how he blames both God and his wife? (laughs) That woman that you gave me. Uh-huh. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent tricked me, and I ate. 
All right, so let's stop there for just a second, because um, that's kind of the story of how the sin happens and how uh, Adam and Eve begin to uh, shift blame and, and all the rest of it that happens when we sin. Um, I want to stop there because I wanted to, to tell you that the next thing that happens, is, it's indented in my translation, probably in your Bible as well, um, it's, it's God pronouncing this judgment. And he has three of them, one on the serpent, one on the woman, and one on the man. Um, so let's read on in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you among all animals and among all wild creatures. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. Um, so this is... Uh, this is about Jesus, that verse. It actually really is about Jesus. and That's a sermon for another day. But he's, God's talking about how there's going to be enmity between the offspring of the woman and between the offspring of the serpent. And uh, the, man, the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the offspring of the serpent. Um, when I teach about this in our Journey Together class, I remind you of the opening scene of the movie The Passion of the Christ. And if you haven't seen that movie, it, uh, I don't know what you were doing when it came out, but... Um, there's this opening scene in the beginning. It's like this dark, foggy garden, and a serpent slides in, and this, this sandaled foot smacks, crushes the serpent's head, right? This is Jesus crushing Satan. That's, that's what this image is. Um, so this is proto-evangelion. It's the first telling of the gospel in the Bible. Genesis 3.15. Comes up pretty early. Anyway, not our point for today. Let's move on. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pangs in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to the man, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. And we'll stop there for now. We won't read the last few verses of, the, of this chapter for today. So let's make some observations. First, I want to talk about the gender thing in this text because this is maybe staring us in the eyes a little bit. A superficial reading of this story might say, look... The woman's curse is related to childbearing and related to her husband. And the man's curse is related to the field and to, the, to work. Therefore, a woman's work is in the home and a man's work is in the field. So today's discussion about faith at work is just for the men. And uh, all you women can think about having babies, right? <laughs> you know, if, if, not, if it's not your first time here, you know that's not where I'm going with this, but... As absurd as it sounds, that actually has been taught in, in more churches than you might like to, to believe. Maybe not quite so flippantly, not quite so concisely, not quite so directly, but that comes out in the theology of, of some, um, some places. Um, I mean, but if you're going to interpret it that way, really, wouldn't you also say that there's a mandate for all men to be farmers, if you're going to be consistent? Anyway. But it is interesting that uh, here we have another thing that doesn't come up until after the curse of sin, which is wives being subjugated by their husbands. Some people have argued that that's inherent to the created order. 
No, that's the result of the fall. Also not our topic for today. The point is that I I think the the way that the curse is described for the man in this passage is true for every person who works. Even if you're a homemaker, by the way, and regardless of your gender. So I think when we look at the text, I want to kind of... uh, zero in on the, on the part where God is talking to the man about the particular way um, his sin is going to affect him. Because in our culture, unlike in the culture at the time when these words were recorded, um, it's very common for both men and, and women to work, as you all know. All right. So that starts about halfway through verse 17. Um, and what he says is, "'Cursed is the ground because of you.'" In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. So this curse that work exists under, what does it entail? Well, you just run down through it. It entails toil. Right? Work is going to be hard. Thorns and thistles. There will be obstacles to accomplishing what you want to accomplish in your work. Interestingly enough, food. (laughs) He says, uh, in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. So it's at least going to continue to be partially productive. The curse is not so broad and deep that you can't accomplish anything. It's just that there's going to be thorns and thistles. It entails sweat, which I think is like toil, but more, right? It's not only going to be hard work, it's going to be very hard to work sometimes. And then ultimately, death. You shall eat bread until you return to the ground. And then those words that we will hear on Ash Wednesday... Remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now I know that anybody who has worked a day in your life, you feel the pain of this curse. What I should have had you do is share your first job with somebody next to you. (laughs) My first job was at Burger King, and the worst task of that really uniformly horrible job, was to, to um, re- clean and replace the, the, the oil in the fryers. Anybody ever worked fast food and had to do this particular task? Yeah, there's some, <laughs> thank you, I see that hand, right? So you, you drain it out through the bottom, and then it's got all this sludge in there from the breading of uh, a billion chicken nuggets, right? And you have to scoop that out with a little mesh thing and put it in a bleh, right? Meanwhile, you have this rubber apron on, right? And then you have to put new clean oil into the thing, right? And it doesn't come liquid. It's just a giant block of shortening, which you have to, like, we had to, I had this metal, I can picture it to this day and I can smell it to this day, this metal scooper that I had to use to scoop big giant slabs of, of lard, essentially, crush them down into this thing and it was a nasty job right 
you can think about your first job. You might be thinking about your current job and how horrible it is some days. Do you toil at work? Are there thorns and thistles that prevent you from achieving the things that you want to at work? Do you sweat, literally or maybe figuratively, as you put bread on your table? Do you sometimes sit at work or stand at work and wonder how many days until you die will you have to continue to do this particular job? Right? That is the curse of sin. Now, hopefully, you're, you're in fields where you don't feel all of that all the time. But I know that you all feel some of that some of the time. You could have the best job in the world, and you could still feel that way. I sometimes feel like I have the best job in the world, and I still feel that way in my work. It doesn't matter what you do. You know this pain. And I want to tell you that this pain that you feel at work is the curse of sin. You are seeing the way of the world. So what I want to encourage us to do is take advantage of that perspective that we have. In preparation for this series, I read a a really great book on work called Every Good Endeavor by Tim Keller, who's a pastor in uh, New York City. And it's shaped a lot of what I've said so far um, last week and today. And in talking about the curse and work, he says that the curse makes work become four things. So I just want to run through this list for you really quickly because I think it's very apt. I think it's very telling. So under the curse of sin, work becomes, first of all, fruitless. All right, this is like in the garden. Sometimes you work and you do everything right and you still don't get the result that you want or you don't get as much of that result as you'd hoped. Work is fruitless. He says work becomes pointless and cites this great book in the Bible, the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, one verse in particular where, where the, uh, the philosopher character in the story says, I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had spent in doing it, and it was all vanity and a chasing after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Sometimes even the most rewarding career has moments where it seems like the work you're doing is pointless. It has no purpose, no ultimate meaning. You don't have to be doing TPS reports to, to, to have that experience, do you? Under the curse, work becomes fruitless and pointless and it becomes selfish. There's the story in the Bible of uh, the Tower of Babel, right? which Mumford and Sons pronounces Babel, and I don't think that we're ever going to get that back, but we'll call it Babel for now. right? The people in that story, if you know the story, took a technological advancement, that is the invention of the brick, and said, let's go make a name for ourselves. Keller's argument is that, that technology and advancements like that are all, can, can all be good, can be used to advance human flourishing and to create a good world. But the problem is we get selfish, and instead of wanting to create a, a name for God and, and advance His glory and His designs for the creation, what we want to do is make a name for ourselves instead. 
Sometimes it's like that in work, isn't it? Whether you want to advance really far in your career or whether you just want to make yourself look better than the one next to you so that when a moment like what Brian experienced this week comes up, you're not one of the ones who gets the pink slip. And I, I regret using Brian as an example because I really doubt that he has been um, doing anything untoward at work that would elevate him above his colleagues except um, being really good at his job, which he is. Um, but sometimes that's what happens, right? You, there's, a, there's a dog-eat-dog world out there kind of thing. You think about number one. So under the curse, work becomes fruitless and pointless and selfish, and it also becomes a form of idolatry, which um, Keller's definition, I think, is a really good one, making a good thing into the ultimate thing. So if you think of traditional work cultures where work itself is kind of like the highest calling a person can undertake, and it's also a, an indication of where you fit into the caste system, right? You have a job of a fisherman because you are not as good as the, as the person who has the job of a businessman, etc. Or in modern and postmodern cultures where um, the, idolatry, the, the idols of, of individualism and even something good like philanthropy can become like little gods in our lives at work. So fruitless, pointless, selfish, and idolatry. It occurs to me that those first two, the fruitless one and the pointless one, those sometimes feel like they're outside of your control, don't they? Right? If your work is fruitless and pointless, that's not always your fault. Maybe most of the time it's not your fault. And the result of external forces, right? While the latter two, selfishness and idolatry, those you kind of have to own for yourself, right? Those are the result of internal forces, which is to say they're the result of our own doing. But both, I think, are the result of sin. And I want to confess that usually when I talk about sin here, because, well, I don't know why, but I have some ideas that probably doesn't help to talk about at the moment. But I find myself talking about sin and its consequences more in the first half, more in the first category, like there is sin in the world and things are broken and people do bad things and those, those bad things result in, a, in a, a world that's not as good as it could be. And on a gigantic geologic level, it results in you know, a world that, that has natural disasters and all that kind of stuff. I think about sin a lot in that external force kind of way. And I do think that that is a way to understand sin. But sin is also something very personal. It's not just somebody else's sin. It's not just cosmic entropy. It's destructive to you because the world is full of sinful people and you are one of them. And you are sometimes proud or unwilling to share the credit when things go well. Unwilling to accept blame for your failures. You are centered on yourself rather than on God. You are a different person when your boss or your coworkers aren't looking than when they are. 
And that goes for every one of you and for me. The, the, the consequences of sin are not just something that we have to lament and wait for God to fix at the end of all things, which, by the way, I think he will. One day the whole world will be made new by God's grace. The curse will be fully and finally eradicated. Work will once again be as it was intended to be in paradise. It will be fruitful and purposeful. It will be a co-laboring with God to bring about beauty and flourishing. The consequences of sin will be wiped away forever. But in the meantime, we're in the thick of the curse. It's not enough for us to long for that day in the sweet by and by. (laughs) In the meantime, we have to confront our own sin. And the solution to sin is God's grace. That is the only cure for the disease. And so as you're thinking about your own life, your own failings, your own sinfulness, I want to tell you that you can step into God's grace now. Think of God's grace like a huge, powerful waterfall that is flowing. There is nothing you can do to make that water flow. It flows on its own. But if you want to be doused in that grace, you do have to take a step into the water. Right? This is, this is why we're saved by our faith, not by anything we do ourselves, but while there's, why there is still a step that needs to be taken, an intentional um, decision to stand in the waterfall of grace. And the way you do that is through repentance and through what I would describe as complete and total surrender to Jesus as your king. We don't like talking about kings in America. The last one we had was King George, and we kicked his butt all the way back to London. But Jesus is the king of the universe. His kingdom is not of this world, as he said over and over again, despite the fact that all his followers wanted him to make it of this world. His kingdom is not of this country, despite the fact that a lot of his followers in this country want to make our government into the kingdom of Christ. Jesus is a king, and when you meet the king, you kneel before him. You pledge your life in service of his kingdom. And when you, when you surrender and offer fealty to Jesus as a king, you give your life a new direction. So there's this kind of twofold movement that we talk about in the church. Repentance is a turning away from something else. But it's not, is it enough to turn away from something with nothing else to turn toward? Because when do you stop turning and eventually you're back where you started? Or you're going in the wrong direction anyway? So it's both a repentance, a turning away from the sin that has, that has governed your life to this point or that has snuck back in and it's a kneeling before Jesus as your king. Now, for some of you, there, there may never have been a time in your life 
when you consciously surrendered your life to him. For others, you would, already, you would say you've already been part of Christ's kingdom, but your allegiance may have wavered, as our allegiances sometimes do, especially in the area of work. You may have been tempted to say, I am a citizen of the kingdom of Christ, but sometimes I visit other towns, <laughs> right? And when I'm over here, I, lo- I live and operate this way, and then I come back in and through the gates at night to the kingdom of Jesus. That is not how it works. In either case, I want to offer you a chance right now to make things right before the king, okay? And, um, you know, I, I, I suppose I don't often approach things this way, but I, I felt like this was where the Spirit was leading me t- today. And so I want to offer a chance for two different types of people to make two different types of prayers. And um, what I will do is kind of pray each of those prayers. And, and, and wherever you are, whether you're a person who's never been a citizen of this kingdom and, and you're repenting now for the first time and, and kneeling before Jesus for the first time, or whether you're somebody who's kind of just been screwing around with it lately and you need to fix it, I want to offer these two types of prayers. And if, you're, if neither one of them fits you today, that's okay. I don't want you to feel like you don't belong here. You still are most welcome to be here. But I know that there might be those two groups of people dealing with stuff right now. So just very briefly, I want to pray um, in that first voice. And if you'd like to offer your own kind of version of this in your heart, you can, you can do that. And then I'll pray in that other voice as well. So, um, God, now we, um, we admit to you our own sin and the fact that um, we have, just like Adam, been wanting to blame everybody else in the world but ourselves, even for the things that we've done wrong. And um, God, ha- having never dealt with this in this way, having never taken that first moment of repentance, having never knelt before Jesus as our King, I'm going to do that right now. And we don't always know what will come after a decision like that. But I just offer myself to you, Jesus, uh, in the service of your kingdom, asking for your forgiveness and your grace to cover the sin that I've already committed to give me strength to move forward in a different way. Just place our trust in you completely. Amen. And now if you're a person who has already had that kind of moment with Jesus and you feel like you've blown it, um, I want to offer another prayer. And you can, again, if if this is you, um, kind of give your own words and voice to this in your heart. God, um, we thank you for your grace in our lives that has covered our sin. Um, We confess to you that we have continued in that sin at work and in other places. Uh, As we pray almost every week, not loving our neighbors as ourselves, not loving you with our whole hearts. We are sorry for that sin and we want to repent anew today and renew our allegiance to Jesus and to his kingdom. We give you thanks that we have confidence that you accept us back into your grace. That your grace is so big and wide that the water is so intense and powerful that it cleanses us from our sin despite the fact that we can't always seem to get it right. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So, um, well, I thought I was going to go short this morning and I went long. It's a good thing we cut one of the songs today. Um, I'm not sure what experience you've just had this morning, if it was something new for you or, or renewed for you or just something neutral. I would like to hear from you if you've kind of given voice to one of those prayers this morning. Would you write something down on an info card? I, I'm not the type of person who's going to ask you to stand up and give your testimony on the spot, although perhaps sometimes I should do that um, because I think that might be a little bit um, a way to make it stick a little better for you. But uh, if you've had that, some kind of experience this morning, I really, really, really do want to know about it. So write it on an info card and, and let's be in touch about that and maybe come and pray with one of the prayer team members uh, as we take communion. And um, uh, it's important, I guess, what I'm saying, it's important to, uh, to give voice to that prayer to somebody who can hold you accountable to it and respond to you and, and continue to, to bless you and lift you up in that way. All right? So now our communion table is open for all who would follow Jesus in this place. Again, whether you do a great job at it today or a terrible job at it today, um, this, is, this is another way to step into the waterfalls of God's grace. Receive the bread and the wine, remembering his body broken for you, his blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do it as an act of uh, community with each other and trusting in Jesus. We'll continue to worship together uh, this morning in song uh, and respond as the Spirit leads. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.